But let's turn our attention to Acts. And before we read our passage of Scripture, which will start in Acts 14, verse 8, let's ask the Lord to help us understand. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people to hear from You. And we pray that You, by Your Spirit's power, would open our eyes to the truth and make our hearts receptive to what You teach us. Draw near to us, O Lord, and give us the understanding that we need, that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand as we read the Word of the Lord? Acts 14, starting in verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said to him in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, And Lycanoanian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul... Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, He did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, we are nearing the end of Paul's first missionary journey, and we've seen a number of interesting things along the way. We've encountered a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet. We've seen a pagan politician be converted. We've seen disappointing desertions and delightful conversions as large groups of people came to hear the Word of God. We've also seen Paul's pattern of preaching at the Jewish synagogues and yet the rulers of those synagogues growing jealous. And in their jealousy, those hostile Jews have taken various tactics to oppose the gospel. There's been a slander campaign. There's poisoning the minds of the Gentiles. There's roping in the government to bring charges against Paul and Barnabas to make them leave. And then most recently, there was the threat of stoning in the previous city. Well, as Paul and Barnabas now come to a new city in the region of Galatia, they encounter new trouble 
in a couple of ways. Here, for the first time, they preach to legitimate pagans. Not God-fearing Gentiles who went to synagogue, but ignorant idolaters. Additionally, though attacks from against Paul had come from the same quarter, we'll see the angry Jews bringing hostility, the animosity is going to reach a whole new height. It will no longer be threats of assault, but actual assault. And yet through it all, the Lord moves His servants to address these pagans, and He preserves Paul in the trouble. We're going to note three things as we make our way through the text. And first, I want you to see with me power in verses 8 to 10. Now, verse 7, which we saw last week, Luke gave us something of a thumbnail sketch of Paul and Barnabas' movements in Galatia. They preached at Lystra, Derbe, and the surrounding country. In other words, Paul and Barnabas were in these places at least for a brief season. And that's important to remember because in this text, we're only getting a snapshot of one moment at Lystra. But when things go south for the Apostle Paul, Luke will speak down in verse 20 of disciples who have gathered about Paul wanting to know if he's going to get up. Well, that means Paul had already preached in this place and people had been converted. Luke doesn't give us any details about that. He focuses our attention rather on one day of power. And we see it there in verse 8. Paul and Barnabas encounter a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Now, if you've really been tracking, this sounds very similar to Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John encountered a lame man on their way to the temple. It's pretty clear, in fact, that Luke is intentionally echoing that previous story. He uses the same phraseology, a certain man, one who is lame from his mother's womb, literally. Paul, like Peter, looking intently at the man, and then the man healed and leaping. Now, why is Luke intentionally echoing these miracles or tying the two miracles together? You know, the liberals will say, well, it's because only one of them happened and people were just making stuff up. Well, that's hogwash. We're not even going to pay attention to that. God is showing us that Paul's mission, Paul's mission to the Gentiles manifests as much divine power and enabling as the blessing the Lord gave to Peter when he preached to the Jews. So the movement of the gospel from the Jews to the heathens is God's plan accompanied by the power of God. Further, this miracle reinforces the unity of the gospel. The settings are different. Jerusalem in Acts 3, pagan Lystra here. The apostles are different. Peter in Acts 3, Paul here. But the power of Christ at work is the same. There is one Lord over all, and He remains active as His kingdom advances. This is also Luke's way of showing us that diverse audiences in no way changes the power of Christ to reverse the curse. In Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah's prophecy, he spoke of a messianic age, a time when there would be a a lame man weeping like a deer. Well, that's what's happening in this text, and that's what happened back in Acts chapter 3. And it's proof 
that both Jews and Gentiles are seeing the power of God and salvation in Christ is coming for all who believe. And while the miracle certainly gets our attention, don't miss the fact that the miracle only authenticates the message. Look at verse 9 closely because it tells us that this lame man listened to Paul speaking. Paul was preaching the gospel. That's not the same sermon we're about to hear in verses 15 and following. Paul had been preaching in this place. He was engaged in preaching regularly. And here the lame man heard and apparently he was captivated by the power of the message. Because, verse 9, Paul, looking intently at the lame man, saw that he had faith to be made well. Now, what in the world does that mean? How do you see that he has that kind of faith? How can anyone see an unseen thing? Faith in the heart. Well, it's likely that Paul saw this faith supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember there are many moments in Jesus' ministry that he knows exactly what people are saying in their hearts and then responds to them. How does he do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. He can also see the faith of the paralytic and his friends who lowered him down or the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. Well, likewise, Paul, by supernatural insight, discerns faith in this man. He not only sees that the lame man is really there, and you shouldn't miss that, Afflicted people like lameness in the first century, they were often totally ignored, treated like they weren't even persons. But Paul sees him, and he locks eyes with the man. And then he sees that there's faith in his heart to receive the message about Christ. Paul sees that this man, while he's heard of a Savior who died, is really raised. And this Savior has the power to open the eyes of the blind unstop deaf ears, and make the lame to walk. So the man believes, this Savior can rescue me from my misery. His Gospel comes to poor, lowly, afflicted people. And just as He was raised from the dead, He can make what is dead, my legs, come to life. Paul sees faith, and then verse 10, he commands in a loud voice. Again, he's getting attention of the people by what's going on. And he tells him, stand upright on your feet. There's nothing in the text to tell us that the guy was expecting something from the Apostle Paul. We get no information about him begging and asking for money. And yet, contrary to all expectation, Paul not only speaks to him personally, he displays power to restore the man. Now, Luke doesn't record the phrase in the name of Jesus, stand upright. But because there's a connection between Paul's preaching and the miracle, surely that's implied. Paul doesn't have any divine power, contrary to the thoughts of the pagans in a minute who are about to try to worship him. Only Jesus has the power. But Jesus, brethren, is working through Paul. And his working here is stunning and it's picturesque of all of our needs. We are not all lame men, but lameness is a telling spiritual picture of our condition. We have a lameness of soul so that we have no ability to make one move towards the Lord. 
We don't all have dead legs. We have something worse. We have dead hearts by nature. From the womb, we are dead in sin unless the Lord intervenes to make us alive. But brethren, that's the thing He's willing to do. He's willing to overcome all of our spiritual ineptness and rescue us from our misery. And just think of how that power is demonstrated. This guy is lame from his mother's womb, and now he's told to do what? Stand up. He can't do that. He's incapable, totally, of obeying the command. There's no assumption of some type of inherent power in this guy. He has no ability, just as we have no ability to exercise faith. Dead people don't suddenly believe. They're dead. But faith is a gift. Power comes from on high to invade our dead hearts, to take a heart of stone out and give a heart of flesh. Well, likewise here, power comes from above to invade this man's body, as it were, and give him legs that are alive. And think of what happens. Suddenly, his shriveled muscles are strengthened. His brittle bones from no use are fortified. Suddenly, his dead nerves are alive with feeling and his joints are able to perform the complex work of standing up. We've all seen how long it takes for a baby to gain the strength to do this with their little frames. I mean, they're like this tall. And it takes them about a year or so to figure out how to walk. Think of a fully grown man who's never walked. And now he has to have the coordination to stand up. He can't do it. But by the power of Jesus Christ, he does just that. And not only does he stand, look at verse 10, he sprang up. It's the same root word for weeping back in Acts chapter 3. So think of it. He goes from no movement at all to energy exploding through his legs that now live. And it's not just one burst of energy, it's lasting change. He sprang up and he began walking, continual action. This is incredible, extraordinary power. And brethren, it's an emblem of the power available for all who believe. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the preaching of His Word, can give you life in the place of your spiritual lameness. He can make your sin-sick soul well, cleansing you, transforming you in full. This miracle is a sign of restorative power, putting what is broken right. In that way, we could call it, and I'll use the big word, eschatological, kingly power. What is eschatological? It's a big word for last day's power. Things pertaining to the eschaton, the last things. The last days have broken in with the ministry of Jesus Christ. And He's overthrowing the curse, just as we saw back in Acts chapter 2, when Babel was undone and people could hear the Gospel in their language. Now, of course, with the last days erupting, we have not yet reached the fullness of the power of those last days. Christ is not returning in our text. The power of sin is not suddenly eradicated. In fact, sin is going to shock you in just a second. But what is clear is this. Jesus is King. And as His Gospel is preached, He brings transformation in power. The Gospel is the power of God 
unto salvation. Do you understand what that means? As the message of the gospel is preached, which seems like foolishness to the world, God brings almighty almighty power to bear on the hearts and changes people, washes your sin away. Are you crying out to the One who has the power to restore you? Do you have faith in Him? And if you trust in Jesus Christ already this morning, are you still looking to Him for resurrection power to sanctify you, to grow you, to impart to you an abundant life? Behold the power of Christ the King, brethren, and stand amazed. Honor Him, love Him, serve Him, because He alone can make all things right. But then notice the crowd who sees divine power at work. They start drawing the wrong conclusions. See, secondly with me, paganism in pleading. Paganism in pleading. Now, upon the working of this miracle, verse 11, the crowds, who evidently weren't really listening to the sermon, they start speaking to one another in their own language. Into verse 11. Luke points that out because Paul and Barnabas are speaking Greek. They don't know this native language. So it's going to take them a little while to figure out what in the world these people are doing. But the pagans say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they call Zeus. Paul they call Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now I guarantee you Paul and Barnabas said nothing about Zeus and Hermes. So why in the world are they drawing this conclusion? Well, the Roman poet Ovid, which I'm sure all of you have read, in one of his famous books, and it was famous at the time, he told a well-known story of Zeus and Hermes taking human form and coming to the region of Phrygia, which is right beside Galatia. So the people know of this story. And the story was how Zeus and Hermes incognito sought hospitality from the people. Well, many refused to give it. But there was an older couple who took the gods in. And because of that kindness, Zeus and Hermes rewarded the couple, but then brought judgments down on the rest of the people. Well, that legendary tale has touched these folks so that in their superstition, they think Zeus and Hermes have shown up to their land. And they want to make sure they treat them well. So the priest of Zeus, he starts running out, verse 13, to put garlands on them. This is kind of like greeting you in Hawaii with with Olay. We, We honor you. But then he wants to offer a sacrifice of oxen in tribute to these men who they think is a god. Now at this point, Paul and Barnabas figure out what in the world's going on. And they tear their garments. It's a sign of deep grief and dismay across all cultures in the ancient world. But to the Jews, it's a sign of blasphemy. This action would have gotten the attention of the crowds. You guys think you're doing something good, but this is horrific. And Paul and Barnabas, they rush out to the crowd and plead, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? Much like Peter had to tell Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius bowed down to worship him, stand up, I too am a man. Paul has to say, we're also men of like nature with you. In other words, worship offered to humans has no place. Paul is saying, brethren, we're not of a different order, some different type of being than you. We are mere men. 
Now, this statement is also a confrontation of the people. Because the Greek word translated there in verse 15, of like nature, specifically means, literally means, of like passions. Implying that God should be of a different sort altogether. But here's the weird thing about the Greek gods. They are all too human, aren't they? If you know your Greek mythology, Zeus in particular, he flies off the handle in anger all the time. He's frequently consumed with lust. According to Greek mythology, Zeus has fathered eight children by goddesses and 15 children by human women. Zeus is not holy. He's not just. He's not immutable, that is unchanging. And he's not independent and above his creation. So Saul's argu- sorry, Paul's argument begins by saying, those who are constituted like us limited, fleshly, given over to suffering, morally flawed, we are never to be given divine honors. To attribute praise that's due to the deity, to those like us, is utter vanity. And then Paul shifts to a positive appeal. He says, clearly noting that they desire to worship and that all humans were created to worship. He says, verse 15, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, offering sacrifices to a pantheon of flawed gods. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, as I mentioned at the start, Paul is preaching to raw pagans, pagans in the wild, we might say. They're not Gentiles who have heard of the Old Testament. They don't have any contact with the Scripture. So when Paul starts addressing them, he doesn't begin pointing out God's gracious acts in the Old Testament. They have no idea what that is. Rather, he starts with the good news that's a gospel word. The gospel begins actually with a benevolent creator God who rules everything and cares for man. And the good news starts by saying this God is kind and faithful, not arbitrary and capricious like the Greek gods. He alone is the maker of all things. Nothing exists apart from Him. You don't have to devote yourself to a multitude of limited gods, a God of the sky, a God of the sea, and so forth. I didn't do a count as to how many Greek gods there are, but there are a lot of them because their power is so limited. No, this is the one God who comprehensively rules everything. And you must turn, that's a repentance word, you must turn from these vain things to a living God. The one God that's true isn't deaf, He isn't distant, He isn't dark to you and your needs. He lives. He's actively reigning right now. He's overall His Creator. Now, Paul isn't going into great detail, as he will at Athens in Acts chapter 17, about the creator-creature distinction. As he comments here, he's trying to get them to stop doing idolatry. Like right now, this is an urgent moment. But Paul is establishing that God is fundamentally different than any mere man. And as such, God alone is worthy of worship. But these hearers, have failed to give God the worship that He is due. 
they've entangled themselves in vanity. That is the worship of what is empty and unsubstantial. They're deluded in their sin. But here's the good news. There's a way out of your blindness and folly. Indeed, the way out has been initiated by God's grace, God coming to you. This is a crucial thing to see. God sent His servants to these blind pagans to tell them the truth. God is initiating the action. There's hope for you to escape. And God is sending you a messenger to tell you what that is, that you would turn to this living God. Paul also speaks of the significance of the moment. Something has changed in the history of God's dealings with man. Do you see it in verse 16? In past generations, He, God, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now that statement by no means indicates that the nation's ignorance of the true God was acceptable. No, the phrase, walking in their own ways, is Old Testament wingo for sin. Isaiah gives three very striking examples. <clears throat> Isaiah 66 verse 3, the Lord condemns His people for choosing their own ways. Isaiah 56.11, the Lord condemns the rulers in Israel who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way. And then there's the verse that many of you already know, Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The nations were ignorant of the true God, but they're culpable for following their own corrupt hearts. They weren't seeking God. They were doing what they pleased. They were walking in darkness, choosing the path of darkness as God exercised sovereignty over them. Now, prior to this moment, as the good news is coming to them through Paul and Barnabas to tell them of salvation, prior to this moment, God's covenant mercies had been largely limited to Israel. That doesn't mean God didn't care about the nations at all, and He only cared for Israel. We read in the book of Jonah. Jonah's told at the end about this people who don't know their right hand from their left, and many cattle, which is a bizarre thing to say. God even cares for the cows. Do You see, God's kind providence ruled over all nations. Israel was privileged. They got a special word from God about who He is. But God cares for all. God made all things. He governs all things, even those outside of Israel. That's a striking thing to say to a bunch of pagans. God isn't limited to like this little slice of, of area, and when you go to a different country, you've got to worship a different God. No, He's God over all. He created all, and He showed His goodness to you. How did He do that? Verse 17, For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. Paul is teaching the principle that James conveys. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. Coming down from the Father of lights. And this goodness is shown in the face of sin by man. Here the nations are walking in idolatry, rebelling against God, and yet what does God do? He still gives them good things. And those good things are not just rain and food for the table. There was an internal good, a sense of delight in the good things that God had given. 
that's an indictment on all of us as we fail to give thanks to God for every good thing that He's given to us. When you sit at your table and you're enjoying the best steak you've ever had, and there's not just it tastes good, but there's like a, a sense of internal delight in it, who gave you the inside stuff? The Lord did, Paul say. And humans shouldn't have responded to all this goodness by then creating a God for the land, a God for the rain, a God for wine, and a God for pleasure. They should have seen that there's one Creator God who is distinct from His creation. He's all-powerful and He's bountiful in His care. And therefore, you should worship Him alone. But they didn't do that. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped the creature rather than the Creator. But here's the wonderful message that Paul is bringing. God has sent us His servants to preach you the truth that you would be rescued from your blindness. God has stooped to give an even greater gift, His own Son, to bear our sin and shame, to substitute His perfection, to overthrow Satan, sin, and death. And yet, beloved, if you notice, if you paid attention to the text, Paul doesn't mention Jesus at all. What in the world are we to make of that? Well, as I mentioned, Paul is preaching to a people who don't have the Old Testament, who don't have promises of a Redeemer. All they know is creation and providence. How do we evangelize people who don't have the foggiest idea about the Old Testament? Friends, that's really the world in which we live. People don't know the Bible, or if they know it, they know it in a wrong way. Where do we start? We start with common grace. We start with general revelation, creation, the conscience. You have offended the Lord and your conscience smites you. We show them that God is testifying that He rules over all. That's what Paul does. He talks about the goodness of God and your failure to live in light of what you know without special revelation. And then he points out the problem of sin. You need to turn from your vanity. You have guilt before this good God. Now Paul doesn't get to yet explaining the way we deal with guilt Christ and Christ alone. At this point, Paul's just indicated for the first time that, look, your idolatry, it needs to stop because God is showing fresh grace to the nations. But before Paul can even get to the gospel in full, I need you to stop sacrificing an ox to us. Do you see the urgency of the situation? I can't tell you everything yet. You need to just put down the knife and don't be looking at us as gods. That means, brethren, that Paul's message here is incomplete. You're not to draw the conclusion in this passage that there's a way to preach the gospel without preaching of Jesus. There isn't. Paul hasn't gotten to that yet. And if you read of every other sermon that Paul preaches, he always gets to the gospel. But right here, he's interrupted. In verse 18, he scarcely restrains the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, as we stand back from the text, what should we take away? Particularly about evangelism. There is a way to talk to people about the gospel starting first at creation. We have to start with what people know or what they should know. We're not here by chance. There is a Creator. And He's good. Do you experience good in this world? Yes, you do. Where does that come from? More than that, He's personal. You can enjoy personal good things because they come from a personal God. 
This also shows we have to establish concepts in evangelism. There is one God, and you've offended Him. You've sinned against Him. This one God rules over all things, and He is good. The goodness of His creation is seen in everything you enjoy, and that should move you to glorify His name. Even when Paul speaks to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, he still talks about the goodness of God and your sin in view of the goodness of God. Because here's the thing that you really got to get to, brethren. Sin before a holy God is why we need a Redeemer. It doesn't make any sense to talk about Jesus if people don't know why they need Jesus. You have to talk about sin. You have to get to the confrontational proclamation of you need to repent and there's a way to reconcile with God and it's through Christ. But do you see the necessity here, brothers and sisters, of understanding something about doctrine in general? You can't just post a billboard, Jesus is the answer. What's the question? We have to talk about who God is, what man's problem is, and then I can get to the gospel and then I can call you to repent. But you got to know some doctrine to lay all that out. Are you learning your doctrine? If you're not coming to the catechism class Sunday morning at Sunday school, this is a good plug for that, or listening to it later if you're missing it, or going to the other class. You need to know the truth to convey. But of course, you always got to get to Jesus. Paul's interrupted. He doesn't. So what happens in the interruption? It's actually worse than just trying to stop people from sacrifice. See finally with me, and this will be brief, persistence. Verses 19 and 20. Now we see persistence in two ways. We begin with a negative. Before Paul can carry on in his preaching, enemies suddenly hijack the scene. Verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. That means nothing to us about geography, but they've traveled over a hundred miles by foot to get here at this moment. At Antioch, they kicked Paul out of town. At Iconium, they threatened to stone him. But they have hunted Paul down because of their hatred of the gospel. And they have determined to attack. Verse 19, they persuade the crowds. Luke doesn't tell us what arguments they use. But elsewhere, we see things like, Paul's an enemy to the state. Paul is telling us to stop practicing our traditions. Paul's preaching of Jesus denies Caesar's place as king. Whatever arguments they use, they stir up mob justice, which is technically illegal, but I digress. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. What a horrific moment. Much like Jesus was condemned as a blasphemer in a mockery of a trial which violated Jewish law, Paul here, without a judicial hearing, is attacked as a blasphemer. You may wonder, if you're really thinking about it, how come Barnabas didn't get stoned? Well, because Paul's the one speaking. He's the one calling Jews sinners who need Christ and appealing to these pagan Gentiles to leave their idolatry behind. I want you to look and notice how persistent haters of the gospel can be. I, come up, I came up in my age hearing a word that was very popular in the early 90s. Why can't we all just, do you remember? Get along. Because people are darkened in their sin. And they don't just 
kind of, sort of not want you to talk about Christ. They hate the gospel. You can aim to be the friend to sinners like Jesus, to appeal to sinners in love that they would stop their sin and regard your love for them. They can regard your love for them as total hatred and they can want you dead. They may positively loathe you for appealing to them with the truth. Don't tell me the truth, they might say. They might go to the extreme to never hear from you again. Now, it's not likely that any of us are going to be stoned, but it may well be that we could get sued for hate speech or thrown into prison or be slandered as intolerant bigots who are totalitarians because we impose things upon other people. Further, do you see how blind sinners are one minute restrained from great evil with difficulty and then the next, roused to great evil with ease. Such is the fickleness of the sinner's heart. They can cry, Hosanna to the Son of David, and days later shout, Crucify Him! Never forget, brethren, unless God breaks this hardness, sinners will seek to harm gospel preachers. And that harm can have a great variety from provoking fear to putting to death. But the wicked hate the gospel. But then see another image of persistence. These wicked men stone Paul. They drag him out of the city. They suppose he's dead. But he wasn't. He was battered, bloodied, and apparently unconscious. But verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. That's not a supernatural statement of resurrection from the dead. He just got up. He rose up and then let the next three words really get your attention. And entered the city. Would you walk into a city that, with people who just stoned you and thought you were dead? When they see you're alive, what might they do next? What resilience and courage in Christ it embodies words that Paul will later write, struck down, but not destroyed. He's a jar of clay who's afflicted in every way, but is not crushed. He's persecuted, but not forsaken. It's not God's purpose yet to bring Paul home to glory. But rather than arouse more persecution, Luke reports simply, you got to really ponder this, on the next day, he, Paul, went on with Barnabas to Derby. <clears throat> That's close to a 60-mile trip. Can you imagine how Paul felt the next morning? Did he have a concussion? Probably. Were bones broken? Maybe. Did he hurt all over? Absolutely. But what does he do? He presses on. It was once said of Paul by the Lord Jesus, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We may never face suffering like this, having to walk a 60-mile trip after being stoned. But dear friends, will the love of Christ drive us to follow Jesus no matter what we face? We will face hardship. Will we endure? Because the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Weeping may last for a night. And that doesn't mean just a, just a short season of one night. Weeping may go on for a long time, but the shout of joy comes in the morning. Some mornings are really hard, but God still reigns. 
God's mercies haven't changed. So let us persist in speaking for Christ. You know, it's interesting when Paul writes to the Galatians later in controversy, he appeals to them that the gospel he preaches is not about pleasing men, but pleasing God. And he says, as the letter closes, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I'm willing to suffer for His name. Are we? Because this news is so good that the Lord would save sinners. Will we cling to the Gospel of Christ and speak His truth in the face of hostility? May God give us grace to do so, brethren. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come before You and we praise You that You are a God of great power and might who can erupt into deadness and bring life who can raise sinners from darkness and ruin. And Lord, we pray that seeing that power, that we would not only taste the power ourselves, trusting in You, but that we would proclaim that message as we have opportunity. But Lord, thank You that You are a God who seeks worshipers. And help us, O Father, to take it upon ourselves to speak of this one true and living God whose goodness is so great that He gave His only Son, that we should be rescued from sin through Him. Hear us, we pray these things. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.